Hey, everybody. Um, I think I had you all covered in the introductions, but just as a reminder. I'm just starting my video. This is Monica Gandhi. Sorry. Oh, hey, Monica. Don't Having an issue with my tech for one minute. Give me one second. All right. So Monica is coming to us live from the ethers, and um, it, it's good to hear your voice. Um, but uh, Dr. Swindells is in Nebraska, Dr. Clement in New Orleans, Dr. Crane way out on the West Coast in Seattle, and Dr. Uh, Gandhi, who is now joining us. Hello, Monica, Hello, is from UCSF. So I'm going to go without further ado and um, and share my screen, and we're going to get started here. And um, let me kind of just share with the audience what I'm doing this go-around. Several people have seen me do this before, but... A lot of times I'll throw data slides in between the questions. I found with Zoom that there's a lot more intimate discussion than when we're on a long panel physically. So there is some silver lining to using Zoom where I think we actually can see each other and have more of a discussion. And also Dr. Lennox has nicely volunteered to monitor the Q&A as we go. So if you have comments or questions that are germane to what our discussion is, please fire them off and Dr. Lennox will get to them and we'll incorporate that into the discussion. So I've minimized data slides and I'm going to try to turn to the expertise of our panel, which is quite broad um, in terms of what we'll be covering in topic areas. So uh, we'll try to get this started. Uh, I've just received grants from Gilead and Vive and that's it. We're going to talk about initiation of therapy. We're going to talk about uh, weight gain associated with ARVs. I talk about pregnancy and HIV, aging, and virologic failure, which will get to that question that we got towards the end of the Q&A of Dr. Lennox's talk. So what should we use as initial therapy? There's a 48-year-old guy who presents with HIV infection uh, and is asymptomatic. Um, his initial viral load is 280,000, CD4 count 65. The other labs are normal, wild-type virus, uh, and when I mean normal, no hepatitis B uh, or C. Um, mental, no medical history, normal renal functions, okay to start therapy. And here are your choices, and I'm going to attempt uh, to play some music as we go. I wish we were back in 1999. That would be a whole lot better than what we've been dealing with in 2020. All right. Let's see what kind of answers we get. All right. Here we go. 82% were for TAF, FTC, uh, and BIC. Dr. Crane, I believe you had a uh, presentation at Croy on what folks have been using recently. Do you uh, want to yeah. comment on that? Yeah. Sure, I can come in and, and it looks a little like what people are, are suggesting here as their first regimen. So the, the presentation you're referencing was we looked at, at what regimens were being started both among people who were naive and had been on art for a long time and we looked at it over calendar time across scenic sites. Um, and it was amazing, at least to me, how very quickly the transition to Bictarvi was, as well as, as particularly among people who were newly initiating, how quickly the transition from TDF to TAP was with incredibly high percentages for people who are initiating new regimens. That was by far the regimen of choice in the most recent era. Right. So other panelists, are there 
uh, particular things that you would um, think beyond the uh, 82%? You know, um, I would love to make a mention of, of Cabinu, uh, of uh, Cabotegro Repivirine just, you know, in this new world just recently being approved. Um, it hasn't been approved for every eight weeks by the FDA. So the option of Cabotegro plus Repivirine IM every four weeks is not uh, on here. You know, by the trial design, of course, you have to be virolog- you actually have to get on orals, you have to be virologically suppressed for a long time. <laughs> and then you even have to take, um, if, we, if we don't do direct to inject, we even do oral cavitagravirine. But I think many of us are starting to wonder about the use of that agent in um, to increase compliance every four weeks for um, even naives. Yeah, so let's, go ahead. Oh, I'm just going to add it. We started our first patient on it Wednesday uh, this past week who had had some trouble in the past. He was suppressed on Victorvi, but he had had trouble with daily adherence um, over kind of the the course of his uh, HIV uh, illness. And so, um, yeah, it was fairly straightforward process, but uh, every four weeks he'll return for injections rather than eight. So, uh, Sue, if I can just jump in here and please. Um, just comment on what Meredith was saying. And I think a lot of us have, a, you know, patients with adherence challenges and we're just dying to know, is this strategy going to be helpful to them? And just as a sort of caveat, I guess, for the audience, then that all of the data we have, all of the phase three trials, everything else is all about patients that really had good adherence you know as Monica said they had to be undetectable first they were in clinical trials they kept all their appointments and took all their injections so it's still an unanswered question but one that we're all really um, anxious to to know the answer to and I think we hopefully we'll learn that from some ongoing uh, clinical trials but in the interim I think we will be using it for people with adherence challenges and it's going to be interesting to see how that goes. And we should pool all of our experiences because it, I think we are going to try it. And yep. we should pool our experiences while we wait, not just for ACTG 5359, which is actually having problems enrolling yep. in a way because you have people who have problems having uh, adherence. And then at the end of the day, you're requiring virologic expression on oral exactly. prior to going forward. So um, Ricardo Fernandez asked, in those trials that you just cited, how was viral suppression defined prior to switching to cabotegravirolpivirine? Um, well, obviously, they'd be undetectable at baseline, and then there was one some period before, which I don't have in my head. Um, I remember they, they had to be mm-hmm. on oral antiretrovirals for a prolonged period. They had to yeah, be so, on it for at yeah. least 24 so, weeks, so... It, it really was saying, yeah, like you're not, you're definitely going from a period of where you had to almost prove yourself on orals in, in the trials, at least to, yeah. to get over the cavitator. So for somebody like this patient who is treatment naive, um, you may not actually qualify based on the CD4 right. count for the clinical trial, but he'd have to be on orals for 20 weeks prior to, you know, potential randomization and undetectable. Um, at the end of that, and then there was a time period before, which I think was maybe four weeks before, but don't quote me on that. So some period before. Mm-hmm. So Meredith, when you started this patient this past week, it was someone who'd already been suppressed, as you said. Um, what is it, what do you guys think about direct to inject? Um, 
That's uh, there was a study, I believe, at Croy about that, right? Or there's one pending. It was HIV Glasgow, um, I think. So it yeah. hasn't yet been published, but it's been out for a little bit. Within Glasgow meeting, and you're right, the strategy was just okay. Can can we go directly from our oral suppressive agent to the direct to inject versus, you know, going to the oral cabotegravir repivirine for 28 days and then going to cabotegravir repivirine IM? And of course, there were no major side effects, and it was equally successful. You know, if if cabotegravir and repivirine had hypersensitivity reactions or some other reason to believe that it was associated with severe anaphylaxis type reactions, I think the oral lead-in is important, but otherwise, um, pharmacokinetically, it doesn't seem to be necessary. And luckily, since it's not associated with these reactions, I'm, I'm likely to use the direct-to-inject strategy. Right. So Michael, one of the audience members, uh, Alan Bulbin, asked, why aren't we recommending dolutegavir 3TC? And I think part of it may be the way you frame the question, because you didn't include the hepatitis B serologies. Right. I, I said that out loud, but right. Yeah, so yeah. let's talk about that. How, how do folks feel about... Um, just starting with it's two tablets, but it's not a it's not a big deal. It seems like it's more the frequency of dosing that matters more than the actual number of pills. No, just the dolutegravir three TC. Oh, oh, the, the monotherapy. Right, right. The, the data you showed. I'm sorry. Right, the dual therapy. Yeah, yeah, right. dual therapy, one pill. So this guy had a low CD4 count as well. But let's say let's pretend his CD4 count was 480 and his viral load was 100,000. Is that and no hepatitis B, and no resistance. You know, the Gemini study would tell us um, this. He would qualify for doing uh, 3TC and dolotegavir either in Naives, that's a Gemini, and then the Tango was after you were switched over to the two-dose, um, or the two drugs in one pill regimen. And both groups did extremely well if, if you know, adherent. This is the one group that I really want them to take the pill every day. Cause like you just indicated, Dr. Lennox, I got nervous in the Nadia and I got nervous in the Donning study that I'd never want Dolotegravir unsupported, at least by 3TC, by, by having an M184V. So I'd want, I want them to be adherent. Right. Heidi, you were, you unmuted. That means I think you raised your hand. Well, no, I was just, I was going to comment again back on looking at the data of what's actually happening across the sites in, in Scenics. What I can say is that despite the sort of expansion of who might be eligible for uh, dolutegravir and 3TC, the uptake has been a, a lot lower than the number of people who might be able to be transitioned to that, at least, you know, so far. And, and just among us, I mean, what do we think is the advantages would be one less drug as far as exposure. And even though TAF is not as um, concerning for bone or kidney, it, it has some impact, not much, but uh, this would keep things simple. And it seems the dolutegravir 3TC in the right setting seems to work. Uh, and you there, said it's not that hard for bone and kidneys, but let's remember some other stuff with TAF that seems wait, to be really emerging with the weight gain data. So. Aha. And that's a future coming attraction in this, okay. in this panel discussion. <laughs> so we'll get to that. Wonderful. Um, how about some other thoughts? Uh, let's look at the top real quick. It, no one voted for it, but TDF3TC and low dose of Fovarins, uh, it's generically available. It's really cheap. Um, but it's an old drug, uh, uh, several old drugs. And, uh, anybody feel, uh, any patient population that you would want to lean towards there? Crickets. Okay. The one thing I'd say though, is I loved that we actually studied the 400 milligrams 
in the Encore trial as opposed to 600 milligrams. Because I think when we think about how drug trials are done, the phase one, two studies, you get to the, you do the quote, maximum effective tolerated dose. So actually dolotegravir, for example, 25 looked pretty good, but 50 was, was everyone tolerated it and everyone went with that. Yeah. Um, and that was true of these COVID-19 vaccine trials, for example, like the max, you know, with the Johnson Johnson, for example. And, and what happens is sometimes you don't need all that. And, and I love that we as HIV uh, clinical trialists should sometimes question, like, do you need that dose? And are there populations like women, for example, who never needed the maximum effective tolerated dose because they may have higher drug levels than men? And to question that and to think about um, yeah. different doses. Yeah. And some of us on this call who I won't call out except for me lived through the era where we were testing a Favarin's for the first time. And we were using an oncology model where we go to maximum tolerated dose because we were worried about not having efficacy. And so the 600 milligram dose was, was clouded. And, um, a lot of, we didn't use viral load quite as aggressively in assessing effectiveness. We were using clinical stuff. And so the 600 milligram just kind of to move things along was a DuPont Merck setting as DMP 006 or something. And, and we just moved forward and, then when we started using this more and more in sub-Saharan Africa, we saw a lot more toxicity. There's, there's pharmacogenomic reasons for that. And then they backed it down to 400 and it worked just as well. So to your point, let's, um, Mike, it, one other <laughs> quick comment about that regimen. The, the only thing I can think of maybe would be useful if someone had tuberculosis, which we don't see yeah. very often, but you know, works well for that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so and you had a couple of, uh, posters and, and present presentations at Freud 2021 on TB and, and medications. Uh, yeah. So the that might be yeah. in the drug interactions, which is key. So I think we've, we've discussed this pretty well. It looks like nobody's going much for boosted anything anymore. And I think that's what the guidelines are saying. Let's clear off the, um, the, the findings there. And, and, I will... and Michael, based on one of the questions from the audience, I'd like to remind people that there is a table in the ART guidelines panel um, documents about rel- the generic costs, not generic, but the relative costs of some of these regimens. Because there are some that are cheaper than others, as you mentioned, Mike, for the first choice. Right. So moving to the next question, which group of persons with HIV are less likely to receive art therapy in a timely fashion. Let's go ahead and vote, and I'll try to get some music. <laughs> are you trying? <laughs> what? Are you trying to sway the audience with your song? I'm, I didn't know if you could hear that or not. There were six Alabama players who got drafted in the first round last night. I don't know what's up with that. All right. Okay, let's see what results are. All right. Again, another softball over the plate to Dr. Crane, who uh, studied this and reported on it at Croy. Um, yeah, we've looked at this a couple of different times in a couple of different ways, both timeliness of when people initiate art and what, as well as, um, when people become undetectable, which is sort of a combination of when you get started as well as other factors. Um, and, 
and um, I, I like some of these results because there's a number of different outcomes for HIV care continuum steps, not just when people start, but sort of further down where we don't, where we do see some delays in African Americans. Some of those have gotten smaller in more recent years, and, and I'm sort of very happy to see some of these disparities are closing. Other disparities are are remaining, including for for drug use. Although I will note, it is interesting. One of the few exceptions when you look at these various um, steps for drug use is that sort of linkage to care, at least again across scenics. So when people get diagnosed and have their first visit, is actually not later for for the group who are injecting. So they may not be as adherent or getting on art as soon, et cetera, but they're, they're getting tested and linked to care sooner, which is sort of not as intuitive as you might think and probably has more to do with when we're, who we're testing and whether we're still target testing as, or, or really testing everyone as much as we should. So there's some, there's some differences when we think about the HIV care continuum in some of these groups in terms of where they're, where the right. disparities are. And so while I think the, the answer is like the audience was looking at your poster, um, but, but I, I really love the, the presentation because what was, what the main message to me was is that from 2010 or whatever onward, we've gotten better and better and better in getting people into care. So props to the audience for, and all of us for, for really implementing things. And I know, uh, folks in San Francisco and Atlanta and other places who are represented on this panel, we're really instrumental in, in pushing the envelope of getting people into care earlier and getting them on treatment. So let's, let's move on. Um, if Dr. We... Dr. Sag, can I just uh, give some recognition to Dr. Rana from your institution who presented uh, a very nice talk at Croy on time to viral suppression and kind of some disparities in the South, but, but things are generally improving over time. So I just wanted to give a shout right. out. Thank you. Yeah. And Dr. Adiarana, who works with me right down the hall every day um, and and uh, did a great job with that. And I think we're also getting lower viral loads quickly, if nothing else, because integrase inhibitors tend to drop viral load faster. But getting it into people, um, getting treatment started is really important. Uh, so let's move on. So this is another case. It's really basically the same guy, except we followed 83% of the recommendations from the last, um, I anticipated that. And they, this was two years ago. And the HIV RNA remained undetectable till about four months ago. He came in for a visit. RNA was 91. He was a little nervous about that, very obsessed with being less than 20. So we brought him back in two months and boom, it had jumped to 185. And then we said, well, come on back. And it was 220. We're kind of going, what in the world's going on? And he, he was flabbergasted. He says, I never miss a dose. And he's the kind of guy who you're going to believe, right? And so when we think about what might be going on here, um, what do you think is, is one of the most likely reasons? Any one of these could be uh, possible. There's one or two that I think is almost impossible. But uh, let's go ahead and vote. All right, so a lot of you were born after that song came out. It was 1972, Bruce Springsteen, 
off his Asbury Park album. Okay. So, um, Dr. Gandhi, you do a lot of work with adherence. Um, what do you, do you think this is intermittent adherence? Or do you think it I might be not, some other thing? Um, I don't. I actually had this exact patient, exact patient this year. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, it sounds like there was a, uh, relationship between patient and doctor and, uh, they, it seems very unlikely that that's the issue. Um, I think recreational drug use is, um, you know, uh, especially during COVID has been really difficult for people, t- time for people. But, um, but I think again, there seems to be this connection between the two that this isn't what's going on. Um, I will say I did, you know, we, we do have to remember, like you said, a number three, this issue between with cations and integrase inhibitors, because uh, cations being like zinc or calcium or magnesium or um, some of these uh, th- that are found in, in, um, in supplements that people take, not often a multivitamin, but those like, you know, you can take these supplements and they have a lot of cations in them. That's because the integrase um, enzyme and the integrase um, in- inhibitor uh, what happens is that they require uh, the way that they interface. Uh, if you have cations in the mix, they actually knock the integrase inhibitor off the integrase enzyme and they don't work as well. It's kind of like fluoroquinolones and cations um, and how the, the two work together. So I have seen this. Um, I actually have seen this issue with people starting supplements and knocking off their big tegavir. Yeah. Um, but big tegavir is a high genetic variant resistance yeah, um, really before. And we're not the cold war anymore. Right. So this was exactly what happened. Um, uh, this guy is really compliant, adherent patient. Um, and, and he had switched to a multivitamin and I'm literally on the phone with him and he's freaking out. And I said, well, what, let's pull out that bottle. Tell me what's in it. And there was a lot of calcium mm-hmm. and there was magnesium. And I said, aha, just throw that away. Stop. He said, oh, I've already taken my dose today. Um, what should I do? And I said, chill. It's okay. Just stop taking that. And, and he did all right. I'm disappointed that nobody went for the Russian bot. I, I, I just, but you were not back in the 1970s. We're trying to have good relations <laughs> with everyone, like in your song. Exactly. Have other folks on the panel seen this? I'm sure people in the audience have uh, some. So, Sue? Mike, I just wanted to comment that, um, yes, I have seen this, and I've also observed a lot more patients lately taking supplements such as zinc, like Mo- as Monica was talking about, because of the perception that this may help prevent COVID. COVID. Yeah. And there's a lot of, you know, despite the, the absence of any data supporting it, people are taking a lot of uh, zinc, vitamin C, vitamin D, um, because of a huge amount of stuff out there on social media that this can prevent COVID. But just so everyone knows, there's actually no evidence that that's true or that it's helpful in terms of um, treatment. That's a great point. And I, did, I, I wasn't alert enough when I was on the phone with him to ask the reason why, but that I suspect that was a play because he's this guy's hypervigilant, right? And, uh, we have, that's good overall. That's a really good thing. So that's, that was a story here. I will make comment about the fourth choice. It's impossible. And I'll underscore that word for resistance to just de novo appear when people are suppressed. It, it's biologically impossible. Uh, when there's no replication, there's no possibility of escape. It's the intermittent suppression that can lead to that. And as you alluded to, Sue, this, 
the the integrase inhibitors are really so potent that um that they're not going to release that's that's our least concern besides maybe the russian bot okay let's move on to the next when and should or how can i simplify regimens look it's that same guy and uh here i get a little bit more data as wild type is hbv immune so he has been vaccinated he he went on the two drug therapy of dolutegravir taf ftc doing well now his viral loads less than 20 his cd4 count is 270 and um he's asking should i I'm, I'm, can I get to one pill? And one option would be to go to some of these choices, or do we just stay the course? Uh, let's go ahead and vote. Oh, see, that'll work out. Uh-oh. Well, we're going to miss song this time. It was a good one, too. All right. Let's see what we got. Okay. So we have some folks who are in the George Herbert Walker Bush camp of not going to debt, not going to change, wouldn't be prudent. And then we have other folks who would change. We talked already about Dalutegravir 3TC and we talked about Cabotegravir. And I, I jumped ahead figuring that every eight weeks might be the way to go. Um, Dr. Lennox, what do you prefer here? Um, I prefer the George Herbert Walker Bush approach as long as the patient isn't dead set on, you know, trying to change to something else. Anybody got a Bill Clinton approach here? Uh, Monica. Uh, I, every time I do panel with you, I just think you're so funny. I, I'm not able to get through it. Um, so, uh, uh, I would say the one thing is that, you know, when we went back and talked about those questions of, um, you know, long-term side effects on ARVs. I think it is tenofovir and TEF, and I know we'll talk about it maybe later, but they are emerging as drugs that have long-term side effects, or at least uh, the metabolic implications of TAF is no longer like completely, you know, out the window with, with all this weight gain data. And then the other thing I wanted to say, so that's sometimes why I favor going to something more simple if I think they can do it and sparing TAF, taking away TAF. But then the eight-week data because it's a good time to talk about it maybe is to remember that you had to be suppressed. So if we do everything by perfectly by the, by the book in the clinical trials, as as Suits would say, um, uh, the four, you had to be suppressed on four week regimen, and then you could go to the eight week regimen in Atlas 2M. And um, though the FDA hasn't authorized that yet for every eight weeks, it's been appealed for. And I'm curious, just maybe we could talk about this later about from this panel if people are as comfortable with the every eight weeks, especially maybe um, without trying out the every four weeks after some of the resistance data we saw um, from HPTN 083 at CROI 2021, it, that prevention data really made me think about treatment. Uh, that prevention resistance data, um, you know, five out of, out of 12, um, out of 16 failures failing with pretty bad integrase inhibitor resistance made me worry. Right. So the, the, I think just to summarize that the actual number of failure cases or situations were, were low. So it didn't happen that often, but when it did, um, there was almost up to what 35% or so of folks who had multi mutations against integrase. So that means we blew that, blew out that whole class. Meredith, I want to also come back to you because you implemented this. Um, how's your clinic doing it? Um, 
because if, if, especially for every four weeks, it's not like we don't have a lot of other things to do, but now we got to take a staff member, put them in charge of not just administering, but I think also tracking to make sure that folks come back. How are you dealing with that? Yeah, so I, I mean, it's early days like all of these other um, programs, but I think we're very lucky. We have a pharmacist who has really taken the lead on kind of communicating with the patient, making sure they can get the oral um, lead in. I think there's only you know, select pharmacies that are going to be offering this, um, the oral cab and real pivoting for the lead in. Um, and then, uh, and then she'll follow the, the patient and then, um, and then they'll come back for nurse visits for injections every four weeks. Um, and still, you know, the, the patient will be under the purview of, of the provider. This is actually a, a precept in fellows clinic. So this is a fellow patient. Um, so, but we will, we will, follow, we intend to follow the patient very closely. And then, you know, I was just going to add to, I, I do think um, this, I, you know, it wasn't an option here, but, but maybe number five is like, what does the patient want? Um, just with a conversation uh, to kind of talk about, you know, you might be a very good candidate for a two drug regimen um, with, you know, if oral therapy is working well for you, dolutegravir and 3TC might be a very good option um, to avoid a, an additional drug, you know, in what other disease state do we give an extra drug that we probably don't need? Um, and so, and then I think the weight gain question comes into play too, um, and just how much, you know, has this patient had weight gain? And if so, would any of it be reversible with removal of TAF? And I, I don't think, you know, we know that answer, but uh, it's possible that but having one less drug you, on board might be you better. Did, you didn't see my slides, but you p- predicted totally ac- accurately what the next topic was. Jeff, did we have any yes, questions? we did have a couple of questions, Mike. You know, with regard to the dolutegravir 3TC, if you want to make sure people are getting their full dose of dolutegravir, do you need to take any accommodations for dairy me- meals or orange juice around giving the dolutegravir? Or is it just the multivitamin? I don't know the answer to the question about, about dairy products. I don't think that's a major issue. Um, I, I think it's just something that we can monitor for. And if we see the increase in viral load that we might interrogate or ask about that. Um, Monica, did you have a thought? I saw you took yourself off mute. Yeah, we actually looked into this um, because we were looking at feeding tube um what you put down the feeding mm-hmm. tubes in people who were on dolutegravir and uh, were able to calculate by actually con- uh, contacting Vive and working with their pharmacists there that um, what you would see in like dairy products, uh, calcium, that is absolutely fine in terms of the drug-drug interactions. It's it's really the higher levels that, that you would get with um, uh, the boluses of yeah. Uh, and if you were to give the higher levels, if you had to, Monica, how much would you separate it from the dolutegravir 3TC? Well, it was interesting, you know, as you know, dolutegravir with calcium can be given simultaneously as long as they're absolutely at the same time. The the separation, and this was a study that was done by uh, Ivy Song at Beeve and showed us that co-administration of dolutegravir and calcium is possible, but it has to be with a full meal. It can't be with like liquid. So that's why it ended up being separated with the feeding tube calcium. With the feeding tube calcium, we ended up separating it by six hours. And what that meant was that we chose not to do continuous tube feeds in this patient, but um, bolus tube feeds. That's great information. Thank you. Um, okay, let's go to the next case. This is a woman who started Big Taf. FTC 12 months ago, 
Um, and she had a significant weight gain. She had a nice virologic response, but had a, a fairly significant weight gain. So we know this happens. So I, you know, I could show data. We, we, we get this. Um, the question is, what do you do about it? So let's go ahead, look at the answers and vote. All right, so everybody's singing for weight loss here. Um, what do we What do we know about this, um, Sue? You've done some work. I know in the TB you had a you had an abstract at Croy on weight gain associated, I think, with TB therapy, or what was that? Um, abstract five hundred five. I forget, but anyway, what, what have you studied this concept at all, or uh, what would you recommend here? Well, you know, people with TB. I don't. It was an abstract at Croy. It wasn't mine, but. Um, uh, when people with TB gain weight, uh, it makes us happy because that means they're getting better. Yes. And there is also the same can be said for HIV. You know, I can't remember this woman's baseline weight was not underweight, I don't think. It was 145, yeah. So, um, there, you know, is this sort of complicated mix of return to health and regaining of normal weight and then overshooting as, as many of our patients uh, will tend to do and then it's very distressing to them there are obviously many cosmetic issues that are included people don't like it body image but there's also some data on actual you know real po- complications of incident diabetes and that kind of thing so one option sort of not on your slide is uh you know the classic joke when you're in ireland and you stop to ask for directions and they say well i wouldn't have started from here which is <laughs> not terribly helpful, but you know, that may be a consideration. And we are now having conversations with patients in our clinic when deciding about what to start them on, you know, warning people that this is a potential complication and getting a sense of how they feel about it and how much it matters and maybe not starting on um, uh, integrates with TAF right away if, if it's a, a big issue for a patient. Yeah, I love that. I love that commentary. When I first started doing cases, I don't know, 30 some odd years ago for audiences, that was the most common response. Well, I would have never started that. So there you go. Um, Monica, you alluded earlier to TAF. Um, are, are you taking that into consideration, uh, as you start treatment now for the weight gain issue? Yeah. <clears throat> yes. I think, you know, you're right. Like, remember that it was like Croy 2018. I feel <laughs> that was the date that like this broke that the, the, this weight gain thing was real and then kept on coming out again and again. But before that, there was more questions about return to health. And then I think there's been lots of data, right? So I think the thing that, that, that really impressed us the most was the advanced study, which, um, showed us that Tolotegravir TAF, uh, XTC, um, compared to Tolotegravir TDF FTC or, a Favarin's TDF-FTC was sort of, especially in women far and away, uh, led to much more weight gain that actually ended up going out to 144 weeks and counting with, with this kind of upward trend. Um, and I think in clinical practice, especially actually over the last year that weight gain was happening anyway in the context of 
uh, public health restrictions. Uh, it was a very difficult year, at least in our clinic, for a lot of weight gain. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, and so the and then you know multiple analyses that like some are confusing. Is it the TDF helping us lose weight uh, in some in you know is that a, like a weight um, weight suppressant? And then what is it the TAF and Gold Tiger? Is it really the combination? But I will say that of any study, the combination of TAF and an integrase inhibitor is most associated yeah. with weight gain, including this top one. So what seems... we've been doing, yeah. yeah please, so what ahead. we've been doing is we're kind of, we took two approaches. One is removing the TAF in the hopes that that would lead to weight loss. That is not always true. And um, we don't have a study uh, that's showing us that it, it would it would allow the weight loss to occur. Uh, and then the other approach sometimes we've taken is that the one thing that you could say is not associated with weight gain is, and in RTIs, they just haven't been, including Duravarine. And so there's, it hasn't started because of COVID, it hasn't rolled completely. But the Duravarine, thinking about Duravarine TDF3TC as an option, um, yeah. and whether that would lead to, to weight loss, because that's and, the one drug we can't. And in this, we had a ropivirine choice, which would be similar. But um, so far, I, I haven't seen data that shows that changing the art regimen has major impact. Uh, what I noticed back when this started coming out is that prescribing, at least for me, prescribing an integrase inhibitor in TAF caused me to weight gain weight. So that was a problem that I've been dealing with, but I don't want to get all personal here. Let's let's talk about pregnancy. Um, lots of new data, lots of change. It's pretty amazing, actually. Uh, so we have a 30-year-old woman who comes in newly diagnosed. She's six weeks pregnant, picked up on a uh, initial neonatal uh, visit, um, Lowish viral load, high CD4, HLA-B57 of one's negative, wild-type virus, first pregnancy, um, okay to start therapy. Actually pretty excited about it. So which of these regimens would you choose? We'll go ahead and vote. Okay. All right. Well, it looks like a lot of people have gotten the memo. Um, Meredith, do you feel comfortable with this one? Uh, Sorry, I'm muted. Um, so I think there's, uh, you know, we had a few years ago some concerns about using dolutegravir early uh, first trimester. Um, I think this patient, you said she was six weeks pregnant. Um, and so, uh, you know, but I think a lot of those concerns with more recent data have been alleviated. And now we have data that maybe we should be we more enthusiastic about using uh, dolutegravir uh, in pregnant women um, and just in terms of uh, birth outcomes. And so I think I agree um, that I would I would choose five most likely in this situation. Um, yeah. Yeah. Any, uh, anybody, uh, are any of these regimens ones that you probably wouldn't use? Yeah. You know, yeah. Number three, um, the cobacystat levels actually go down in pregnancy. Um, and so there have been reports of either Elvitegra or cobacystat, uh, cobacystat getting into the third trimester or, um, or Adizanib or Kobe or Brunover Kobe. Uh, not having adequate levels in the third trimester. So I'm not, I don't use Kobe in pregnancy at all. 
This actually has been observed with rupivirine as well, with yep. decreased drug levels in the third trimester. Um, and then there's kind of the food requirements with all the nausea uh, pregnancy. So I'm, I'm not, I don't love that in pregnancy. Uh, otherwise, uh, none of these others are contraindicated. I mean, a Favarin's got a bad name a long time ago. That's over. Um, and then the Tisama cohort, as Meredith just indicated, it's completely gone. The signal yeah. of dolotegavir and neurotegavir. Yeah, it's really, about. really interesting. I mean, the dolotegavir 3TC only, assuming hep B negative and all that, um, not quite 100% sure about what happens in the third trimester. And, and we talked earlier about leaving dolutegravir out there on its own. I'd probably want to see more PK data before I jumped on that, although it's probably okay. I don't feel 100% just yeah, yet. Yeah. Mike, some it, of the, um, Eric Pham asked, I mean, sorry, uh, Wheelie Medukla or something asked about, uh, why not? I'm sorry, I'm getting people confused. Why not raltegravir? Why not bictegravir? Why aren't people using these in pregnant women? So it looked like you were about ready to comment on that. Type well, I was of- just going to comment, uh, follow up on Monica's comment about why not rilpivirine, which is uh, just a personal preference that, that I have. And it's because so many women who are pregnant, particularly in second and third trimesters, uh, trimesters end up with dyspepsia and um, uh, lots of indigestion, heartburn, and have to be on a acid-reducing medicine or PPI, which you cannot take with real pivorine, and then you have to switch, and it's just simpler not to even start there. So yeah. that's what I was going it's okay, right? It's a good drug. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, I agree. I w- it I is BID, and, and, and the one thing about, you know, as you know, we can use um, – we can use now once a day raltegravir in non-pregnant populations at a dose of 1200 milligrams a day with the two 600 milligram tablets, yep. but that is not approved for pregnancy. So it yep. is still the, the BID in pregnancy. Right. Okay. And this is, these are the data basically. I, I said I wasn't going to show many data slides, but I thought that it was, it was important. And this, this, Again, for those of us who've been around for a while, this is exactly what we saw with Afavarin's back almost 16 or 17 years ago, it initially had a signal for neural tube trouble, exactly the same. And then as more experience happened, oh, yeah, well, never mind. Maybe sort folate of, is a good thing to get. Yeah, folate, yes. I think I have that highlighted somewhere. Okay, this is so, Mike, a, another... Before you move on, Amita Shira asked, you know, if somebody's already on antiretroviral treatment and they become pregnant, there's now recommendations that in general not to change it. But is there any regimen that if a woman was on it, you would change it simply because she's about to become pregnant? For instance, something containing TAP or cobacystat. I think that, I think the cobacystat is one that I'd probably get away from. Ropivirine, as, as Sue Swindell's just mentioned. Um, but I think most of the other ones that we're using, BIC, we don't know yet. It's probably okay, but we don't have data on BIC. Um, and, uh, and again, the, 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 it's probably okay. It and, in my mind, it and dolutegravir are mostly interchangeable in terms of a lot of things. But um, I don't know, is anybody aware of data on that yet? I know pregnancy registries are ongoing, and certainly there are certain some people who have had been on bictegravir, became pregnant, and stayed on it, I guess. But um, generally, I'd recommend switching in that setting. Um, Heidi, this one's going to come to you. Uh, this is a 62-year-old guy who... You had been taken care of, had a wild-type virus, went away uh, somewhere like Atlanta, in my case, and then returns. Um, 
and has been through several regimens, but now settled into a Bakavir 3TC and Dalyotegravir, 62-year-old guy. Uh, HIV is nicely suppressed, CD4 counts good. Cholesterol, LDL is 100 while he's, he's on a Torvastatin. Uh, creatinine clearance is good. Um, he's a smoker, uh, and he's got no cardiac history. He's also on low-dose aspirin. So the question is, um, besides asking him to quit smoking, uh, what else might you do? So let's look at these answers and vote. So I might add his name was Stephen Tyler. Uh, I know that's a HIPAA violation, but Heidi, what would you do here? Yeah, so it's it's going to sound mundane, but it's really the smoking is the thing that drives it more than the regimen. I think the point of this question is you were hoping to have a discussion about a back of ear, but the, actually the place you can have the biggest impact is the smoking. And so what I would do with this gentleman is actually I calculate his ASCVD score with him on a big screen where he can see the information I'm entering, and I calculate it with him as a smoker. And so and then we talk about the you know, what percentage, if there were a hundred of you in the room, how many of you will have a heart attack in the next five years? And then I would do it again with that. After you quit smoking, I talk a little bit about how quickly that changes. And then I'd recalculate the, the, his risk score and I'd have him help me do it. So we do it up on a big screen where he can see what I'm doing and, and, and compare that percentage of, you know, if there's a hundred of you, how many of you are going to have a heart attack in the next five years? If you keep smoking versus how many of you won't if you stop smoking and so so i mean there it's one of those things where yes we can tidy things and what's you know he's on a statin he's on etc etc but the first second third fourth and fifth thing i would focus on for this gentleman (laughs) is smoking yes absolutely and that was some one of the key points um i think the other thing that i don't have an answer to i'm not sure anybody does but part of the mechanism that's been proposed for a bakavir's uh, association with the higher uh, rate of, um, of myocardial infarction is that some sort of platelet aggregation. So I put him on low-dose aspirin in this question, just wondering, is that going to make a difference? And I don't know of any data that supports that, but it seems kind of logical in a way. Yeah, no. Oh, Mike, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in here. And I, I you know, this Abacavir heart attack thing, it's just somehow never going to go away, I don't think. And I don't know that we're ever going to get really um, pristine, uh, you know, data on this, such as a prospective uh, placebo-controlled randomized trial. And so we're stuck with a lot of observational data, some in huge cohorts, which does seem to be persuasive that it does play a role. And uh, I think that in reality, you know, a lot of people might switch this because this is one thing, you know, that we have control of. Heidi's suggestion about the risk score, I think is brilliant. I'm going to start doing that. I think we all spend a lot of time trying to get our patients to quit smoking, and we all know how very difficult that is. I sometimes have trouble getting patients to take a statin. You know, they'll take their HIV medicine, but they're just really not interested in blood pressure and statins. And so this guy at least is doing that. But here's one thing that we can do that makes everyone feel a bit better. We're trying to decrease his risk. Yeah. And then um, 
this is similar. Which flag, which factor places someone at high risk? We've already kind of addressed it. And I was also going to get into, um, the notion of the, of a recent, uh, poster that Heidi had about hypertension, which is good if you can control it was the take home. Do you want to say, I can't wait till the reprieve trial? I'm really interested. Yes, exactly. So, um, so Stephanie, we may, we may move on from this just in the interest of time. So now we're going to get into aging in the last seven minutes and I'll wrap up with a couple of things on difficult, uh, uh, failure, uh, situations. But uh, what's the best way to evaluate patients? We have a 60 year old guy uh, diagnosed 17 years ago, well suppressed, CD4 count. I'm not sure why we're still measuring it. Probably not necessary. HLA B57 negative on Big TAF FTC. And you wonder, should I assess his cognitive function? He's not necessarily complaining of anything, but, um, if in the ideal, should we assess this? Um, uh, should it be conducted annually every other year? Uh, maybe just ask the simple question. Go ahead and vote. Okay, that was a shout out to uh, Andy Kaufman, and uh, I guess Jeff Linux indirectly because it was by REM, who's out of Athens. Um, so um, routine assessments could be conducted. I, I know um, Monica, your team, Victor Valcor in particular, has worked on this. Heidi, you've worked on this. What, what just real quickly? We only have about five minutes left. What, just a thirty-second summary of what you would recommend in the ideal. We um, actually have a geriatrician who works with our clinic, um, and we have this HIV and aging program called Golden Compass, and we have all been taught to do MOCA and mini kind of mental status um, assessments, and we have been asked to do this every uh, six months with our patients. So it's we have decided to do this kind of routinely in a mini way, and then if we end up uh, something of concern, we end up uh, going to, uh, to more full-on neuropsych testing. So this has become a part of our practice for anyone over 50. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's the other thing. What's the, what what do you think? Yeah. So I think, you know, the reality is most clinics don't do anything. So doing anything is fabulous. And so I love Monica's answer. I think it's hard to convince clinics to do things until it's clear what the response is. And so it's hard, it's hard to justify sort of screening for something unless we have treatments and things. But I think there is enough support for, you know, patients may need more help with adherence or they need, you know, there, there are enough interventions, I think, to justify it. I do yeah. think, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, I do think that the choices are are complicated, and I think they're complicated for a number of reasons, right? So when we're trying to do this to screen broadly on lots and lots of people, we need something we can implement in a clinic in a way that doesn't disrupt flow. There's no way to do two-hour or four-hour neuropsych testing on a 1,000 people in our clinic. So I love the idea of doing a MOCA or something like that. Although I think we all know that that most of those brief screeners focus more on memory and some of the components that are better at picking up sort of Alzheimer's disease and less at sort of some of the components we need most to be a broad screen in HIV. So more the executive functioning and sort of global, you know, speed, you know, sort of processing speed, sort of the components that 
tend to get impacted more in patients with HIV, which, so I think, I think it's a, so I love the idea that, that some clinics are doing something routinely, but I do think in the long run, um, clinics are going to end up moving more toward some of the, of the, of the tests that are able to incorporate things like executive functioning or processing speed. So computerized trails or various modifications like from the BHA, the brain health assessment or some of those. And whether it's uh, BHA Heidi, or toolkit or others. Oh, I'm so sorry. Well, that's okay. I thought you were finished, Heidi. It's, um, Heidi and Monica, there's a question from Sally uh, Cooper. What do you do when there's a change, when you've now got a positive change? Who do you refer them to? I mean, you guys live in the big, fancy metropolitan areas, et cetera, but in a general American city, who would you refer this person to? You're right. We do have this memory and aging center with Victor Belcour, and that's where we end up referring them. Um, there are neuropsych testing available in, in multiple places to get a fuller assessment. And then... Um, that I don't know about, about Georgia and Aria. <laughs> but I think even beyond that, even beyond having the memory clinic or the, or the resources you're referencing in, in some of our clinics, I think it's something providers should know is an issue for their patients, even if they don't have the resources to refer it out. And I think it has, has implications in terms of thinking about, you know, maybe this is someone I really need to think harder about simplifying the regimen, or is this someone our pharmacy can do pill counts or sort of pre-prepare their meds, or are there, even if you don't have the memory clinic options, are there other ways of, or other services or other support that can be available as they, as they might be needed? Right. Just one other very quick comment. I know you want to move on is that you know, we're really just talking about the cognitive, but there's also the, you know, the motor part as well. And, and Christine Erlinson and, other, uh, and others have given a lot of nice presentations about simple ways to do that. You know, just standing up from sitting in a chair or, yeah, which I is, yeah, you know, just walk. Which walk, is the frailty assessments that, that I was going to at this question. I have to skip over, unfortunately, but those are the things. The reason I put it out here in the, in the discussion today is that our populations are getting older and that's really good, but that's also creating challenges. And and I think we do a poor job as a medical society, if you will, for generalized aging and assessing cognition regularly. I think we miss things and frailty in particular falls are just highly predictive, right? So we need to do better. Um, I'm going to finish up with virologic failure and just make a couple of comments before we close. One is that, um, if people have a 3TC base or FTC baseline resistance, the drugs work great. Uh, and even if you have somebody who failed a regimen, integrase inhibitor mutations are uncommon. The FTC or 3TC mutations of M184V or I pop up, and then the drugs work really well. And integrase inhibitor resistance is rare, so you're okay moving forward. This gets to the question that we have in the pretest that Heidi was a part of, um, out of Scenix. And I think what this was basically was a study of limited treatment options. Um, and then you can see there's a huge inflection as raltegravir gets released. And these, the integrase inhibitors has, have revolutionized what we're able to do. It's hard for me to think of the last time I've ordered a genotype because we can just manage this. Well, you know, doubling down on the, uh, on the uh, uh, dietegravir or whatever the case is, uh, doing it twice a day, et cetera. So um, 
the answer to the question on the pretest was less than 1%, that we actually have people who show up with limited treatment options, that meaning more than, um, uh, sorry, fewer than two fully active drug classes. That just, we don't see that hardly anymore. But, and this is the other fascinating thing from the study that I, we don't have time to go into, but even those who had limited treatment options, look at their virologic responses when we put them on the next regimen wasn't any different than those who didn't have limited treatment options. It's pretty, just pretty special considered where we were. And just a final comment here about uh, identify the full, fully active drugs, digitigra twice a day. Some, some form of tenofovir is always good unless there's a K65R. Uh, using boosted darunavir is probably the best PI. Um, you can still a little 3TC or FTC on as a crouton on the salad as it leaves the kitchen just because uh, there's some residual activity. And then if you if you really are having a problem finding a drug, we now have fostemzivir, ibilizumab, and then a lot of the drugs that Jeff referred to. So in summary, ARV therapy should be instituted with an NSTE-based regimen, non-boosted preferably. Uh, watch out for the divalent cations. We talked about them stalking. Uh, in the stomach to interfere with absorption, um, weight gain, uh, it's, it's, it's an issue. And we haven't really come up with great solutions other than the usual diet and exercise, which isn't terribly, uh, well received a lot. Give folate. Uh, I was thinking that, um, I think Monica, you said that, uh, uh, when we talked about pregnancy, it's really important. And the folate is, I don't have time to go into it, but there is interaction between Dalutegravir, and for that matter, fovarins with folate metabolism. Frailty and cognition we're going to have to bring into practice in two drugs active and uh, went a little bit long, so I apologize about that. The panel, you guys were great, uh, as I expected. Um, Monica, thank you very much and, and yeah, for joining us. Uh, Sue and Meredith are going to hang with us here, but you guys were fantastic. I think this went very well. Um, thank you and very Jeff, much. Thanks for the question. So I'll turn it back over to you, Jeff, to continue. And I'll stop sharing.